my daughter, my little girl, she has just turned two a few months ago, and she is learning everything very fast. And anybody that has a toddler in the house will understand when I say that. And she certainly understands the word no, albeit it's usually coming from her lips and not from mine. But she has recently learnt the word sorry. And just a few weeks ago, I was on the phone with my wife. I was driving home from a church and I heard my wife say my daughter's name. And then immediately I heard my daughter's voice in the background saying, sorry. I believe the story was she had spilled a drink and she knew that because of that trouble was coming. Sorry to her was a get out of jail free card, if you will. The reality is, however, for many people, saying sorry is just like that. And they use the word sorry really to explain the word repentance. And repentance really to them is nothing more than saying sorry and as it were, turning over a new leaf. But you know, friend, tonight nowhere in scripture is this spoken of in such a manner. Repentance, it goes far deeper than simply saying sorry. Yes, there is a sorrow over sin, but it goes far deeper than that. To quote the great Puritan Thomas Watson, he said regarding repentance, God seals no pardon before repentance. He will not pour the wine of assurance into a foul vessel. And what Watson was saying is that God will not pardon a sinner. And he will not grant that justification and the assurance that justification brings unless that sinner turns from his sins and comes to Christ. That's really what he was trying to say. And such words are so true. Repentance is a vital part of the gospel. If you miss repentance, you miss the whole gospel. You might say, how can that be? Surely it cannot be so. Well, friend, today many are living under the cloud of false repentance and false pardon. And they live still sadly in their sins. Many think that they're okay where they are and how they are. But they've never repented and come to Christ. And as such, they're still in their sins. Sadly, also many Christians are living in disobedience to God. And simply think that, think that just saying sorry is enough. Basically, forgive me, Lord, until I go and do it again. Now, of course, the Lord does forgive us. But we cannot use our Lord in that way. Repentance is that putting away of our sin, that turning from our sin. Of course, the Christian repents until their dying day, but there must be that true repentance there if there is a work of grace done in the heart. And in these verses in Jonah chapter 3 that we read together, this whole chapter, repentance is found. Yes, the word perhaps, as it were, word repentance may not be there in as many of sense as that, but repentance there, the teaching around repentance is found in this chapter. And that's what I want us to look at tonight with the help of God. Simply, true biblical repentance. True biblical repentance. And the first thing I want you to see is the necessity of true biblical repentance. There is a necessity of it. And you know, repentance is necessary from both perspectives. In the sense it's necessary for both parties. Now what do I mean about the parties? Well, I fare to the one who has been offended, the one who has been wronged, that is God and his law. And I then refer to the offender, the one who has broken that law, Adam and all his fallen sons, you and I, dear friend, tonight. In relation to the Lord and to his broken law, we know God's law is man's moral compass. That law, if man wants to know how to act, if man wants to know what is right and what is proper and how his actions are to be considered just, he just needs to look at the law of God. However, God's law is so much more than just a moral compass. 
You know, Adam in the Garden of Eden regarding the law, he was placed under a covenant, a covenant of works. You might say to me, how can that be? Well, turn with me to Genesis 2 and the verses 16 and 17, and I'll explain this to you. Genesis 2, the verses 16 and 17 there. Verses 16 and 17. Of course, Adam has just been created here. God has breathed life into him. Read that in Genesis 2, 7. And here now, God is giving man the charge to look after the garden. There, Genesis 2, verse 15 for context. And the Lord God took the man, that's Adam, and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And here Adam was placed under a covenant. You might say, how can that be? The word covenant is not here. But all the parts of the covenant is here. There is the parties. There is Adam and there is God. There is a command given there. It says, every tree of the garden they mayest eat. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. There is a promise given. Because you look at the end of verse 17. It says, the day that thou eatest off, thou shalt surely die. And therefore you can take the reverse of that. If man would die if he ate of the tree, if man had not ate of the tree, man would not have died. There was a promise of eternal life if man kept the covenant with God. Of course, Adam did not do so. We know Adam broke the commandment and sin entered the world. And because of that, that covenant of works, Adam could not fulfill it. And neither could any man, neither could you or I. We cannot keep God's law because we are sinners by nature. Men now are the enemies of God. Romans 8 verses 6 and 7 speak of the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, the mind of man being at enmity or the enemy of God. That word enmity, it speaks of hatred and opposition. And man has broken God's law. And man is now in opposition to God and all that God is. Therefore, to go back to repentance and what we were speaking about. In order for God to pardon a sinner from his sins, there must be that repentance, that turning away from the disobedience, from the sins that have been committed, and turning to the Lord. That must be present in the sinner. You know, when I say it's necessary in relation to the Lord to pardon a sinner, I do not mean, and I want to stress this strongly, that it changes God, or it affects God in some way. God cannot be changed or molded by an outward force. Rather, my meaning is simply, if God is to pardon a sinner, he requires that that sinner must repent. God will not pardon an obstinate person. Luke 13, 3 and 5, Christ repeats this truth. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Repentance is necessary in the eyes of God to pardon a sinner. But it's also necessary for a sinner in the sense he cannot be saved without it. Without repentance and his twin sister faith, that sinner can never lay hold on the merits of Christ or hide indeed in his wounds. Many men in this life, you know, they try to work up a feeling of sorrow over their sins. They try to do good, as it were, to balance out the bad that they've done. They try to appease their conscience, as it were, and, and turning their, turn their minds to God and to try and appease God by the good things that they do. But sadly, that does not save a soul. 
And that is not repentance. Repentance is casting off your old life, your sins and your desires and your good works and your belief in the church and your hope in whatever you're hoping in, whether it's baptism, confirmation, I do not know, and turning alone to Christ. Now, of course, I stress that repentance and faith, they're wrought in a man or woman by the work of the Holy Ghost. Their gift of the gifts of God, and I can't take time to deal with that tonight, but I must stress, God requires the sinner to repent and turn from his sin. God requires repentance to pardon the sinner, and the sinner requires repentance in order to turn from his sin to Christ. And as I say once again, no man or woman will ever be saved except the work of the Holy Spirit is wrought in their heart. That's his work. And you know, Jonah, he knew the necessity of this repentance. And if you look there at the beginning, of, or the verse 2 there of Jonah 3, we go into our passage, it says, Arise, go on to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto the preaching that I bid thee. There's the command of God to preach to Nineveh. Look at the beginning of verse 3. So Jonah arose. So he arose. Jonah knew the necessity. He arose, and then it says at the beginning of verse 4, he began to enter into the city a day's journey. Now, the point is this, that, you know, Jonah didn't take time to look around the city. He didn't take precautions for his welfare. Jonah traveled just one day, and then he began to cry out that the city would be destroyed. Jonah knew the necessity in the time that was afforded to the Ninevites. If you look at verse 4, what it says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah knew they only had forty days. And Nineveh was three days' journey, as it says there at the end of verse 3. And Jonah knew with just 40 days that he had to get in and he had to preach. He knew they had a short amount of time. Now, we cannot put too much of a bearing on numbers in the Scriptures at times. They seem to do have a great bearing. But the number 40 is usually regarded as a trial period. And Nineveh, no doubt, was on trial to repent. Just like this world is on trial to repent as well. This world has been given a lot longer than 40 days. And look at the wickedness that we find in it. Dear unbeliever, tonight you've been given a lot longer than 40 days. And yet here you are, perhaps still in your sin. Repentance is necessary if you are to be saved. And Jonah knew it was necessary for there was destruction coming for the people. Note the word, what he says at the end of verse 4. Nineveh shall be overthrown. That word has several meanings or uses in the scripture. It can mean God's overturning and judgment of the wicked. It's used in conjunction with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's also used to, to speak of God's power over the natural world in the sense of earthquakes and floods and the waters such as the Red Sea. It's also used of Israel in the sense of her backslidings and all those different shades of meaning. And to summarize the word overthrown, it really carries the idea of destruction, either by fire and brimstone such as Sodom, some natural disaster such as an earthquake, and we don't exactly know how God was planning to destroy Nineveh, but the point is she would have been destroyed if she had not repented. And the same is true of this world and the people in it. There is a great destruction coming. The terrible day of the Lord is drawing nigh. And the way society is and the stench of men's sins, it rises up to God, just like none of us sin. Unless men repent, they will be overthrown. Dear friend, tonight, unsaved in our gathering, will you be overthrown in that day? 
Christian, we must pray for such repentance in the hearts of those around us. We must pray that our loved ones get hold of Christ with true repentance and faith. And pray that our Heavenly Father would pour out his gracious spirit upon our kinsfolk and our countrymen. And this nation again, lest it too be overthrown. Unbeliever tonight, see the necessity of true repentance. But not only the necessity of it, there is a, the message of true repentance. There is a message that always accompanies true repentance. And this message, it gives birth to repentance when the spirit moves in a person or indeed in a person's heart. And you know, this message, it's, it's not simply moral reform. It's not simply for man to do a little better. It's not simply for man to think a little more enlightened, like many in today's society may believe. It's certainly not a call to much learning. No, it's altogether so much different from that. The message of true repentance, there is a simplicity in it. Look what Jonah says in verse 4. We read it together at the end. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And you know, here you have such a striking picture or an image. Here is an Israelite prophet walking in the midst of a heathen nation. The Ninevites were heathens. They were idol worshippers. They were enemies of the people of Israel. And here is an Israelite prophet and he's walking amidst them. And he's crying out and shouting this simple phrase, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days and all this will be finished. The word cried, it literally could be rendered proclaimed. And here is this picture of Jonah walking or rushing. We do not know exactly, but he went through the streets and the places of Nineveh preaching this simple message. Jonah, as it were, he didn't go over their heads with great depths of theology. He certainly didn't stand and quote worldly authors. He didn't sing contemporary hymns to them. He told them that destruction was coming in 40 days. In other words, 40 days to repent for what's going to come. And though we do not have those words exactly in Scripture in the sense that he told them to repent, yet the message that he gave, 40 days, none of us shall be overthrown, gives rise to that. Why would Jonah go and preach a message if it was not a call to repent or perish? And you know, man and woman today, this is the same simple message we are here to proclaim. Repent or perish. Christ preached this message, his prophets, his apostles, the early church, the Reformation leaders, Puritans, the great preachers of our time and closer to our time, such as C.H. Spurgeon, they all preached it. We can think of that wonderful quote of C.H. Spurgeon, morality may keep you out of hell, but it morality may keep you out of jail, but it is the blood of Jesus Christ that keeps you out of hell. It is the same message that we preach. And you know, dear friend, the small child the older person can understand it. It's simple. We are sinners. We're doomed in our sin. Christ died for the ungodly and he shed his blood and we turn to him and we trust in him alone. And by that simple turning and trusting, you and I can be saved. Friend, today it's a simple message. It's not the bells and whistles of the world that saved. Yes, it might give a big church for a little while, but it will soon fall to the ground. It's not entertainment or worship music that stirs emotions and nothing more. It's the simple gospel of Christ. And that's what Jonah preached, the simple old gospel that leads sinners to repentance. But not only a simple message, it's a very solemn message as well. Jonah's message was most solemn. This city of Nineveh, it roughly, when we read Bible commentators, it roughly had a circumference of about 60 miles. And as it were, to put that into context, 
The city of Belfast, or of course our capital, we know it well, is 44 miles square. And so this city of Nineveh was bigger than what our capital city would be. It is a vast, vast city, and certainly in the time that it was set in, it was bigger even than most of those around. It was a very great city. The word of God, in fact, speaks of it being a great city, as we read there in verse number 2. Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city. Now, some have thought perhaps this means this great city. This means that God thought this was a wonderful place. But that's not what it's saying. This simply means that it was great in the sense of size. It was great in the sense of those around. Not great in the sense of being dear to God, for it was full of wickedness. But great in the sense it was a big city. Yet it was going to be completely overthrown. And you know, friend, the solemnity consists in that fact. This city was great. It had everything it needed. This was part of the Assyrian Empire. This is where the king was, as we can read on down through the chapter. It had food and drink, it had partying, it had armies and soldiers, no doubt it had all those wonderful riches. It was the capital of the empire. And as it were, it was going to be overthrown. It is just like someone saying today, London will be overthrown, or Washington DC will be overthrown. Yet the solemn thought is this, if there was no repentance, so it would have been overthrown. And today, if there be no repentance in you, dear unbeliever, you too shall be overthrown. And this world someday shall be overthrown as well. Soon the great men will cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them like the scripture says. Soon the so-called Christian denominations and the Roman Catholic abomination will be brought to the dust. And only the true church of Christ will meet him with joy in their hearts. Solemnity of judgment and punishment. Eternal hell for the sinner. Dear friend, what will it be for you? Do you accept the solemnity today? Will you come to Christ? Christian, are we really grasping the solemn gospel message? There's so much easy believism today. Just put up your hand if you want to be saved. Oh, that's great. Now you're a Christian. No repentance, no change of heart, no clinging to Christ. Just go on as you are. You've made a decision. That's okay. I'm a Christian, but I'm involved in everything the Bible is against. But that's okay. God moves with the times. That's what we often hear today, isn't it? No, friends. God remains the same and the message remains the same. It's still the simple, solemn message. Repent or perish. Christian, are we spreading it correctly? To neighbors, loved ones, friends and family. Unbeliever, have you really grasped it with your heart that you must repent and turn to Christ lest you too shall likewise perish? And so we see the message of true repentance. But also, there is the effect of true repentance. The effect of it. Look at verse 5, what it says there in Jonah 3. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Then verse 6. For word came on to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. There were effects that followed what happened in Nineveh. The repentance was there, and because of that, there was the effects seen of it. The people turned to God. We can see that in verses 5 and 6, and there was the effects saw as well. The first effect was this, the faith was evident. Faith was evident. Note the words, the people of Nineveh, what it says there in verse 5. Nineveh believed God. Now, if you were to read that in the original Hebrew, and I doubt many of us could, including myself, but 
There is one little Hebrew letter added to the beginning of the name of God. And therefore, literally what it says there, Nineveh believed in God. Nineveh believed in God. They not only believed the message that the prophet brought, but they believed in God. What do I mean by that? Well, they believed that the message was from God. And they believed the message itself. And you know, as it were, it says there at the beginning of Jonah 3, and the word of the Lord came on to Jonah the second time saying. And that word, that is a title of Christ. That is the Lord's title. We can read that in John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Christ gave this message to Jonah, and Jonah gave it to the people. And the people believed the message, therefore they believed the word of God. Therefore they believed in what the Lord had to say. They didn't just believe in a particular God, they believed his message, that they had sinned against him, and then they turned to him. And note that carefully. You know, many people today, they believe in God. Many people believe he's sovereign, and you know, many people even believe the gospel message in the sense that men and women can be saved. But they could tell you, you know, the gospel, as it were, like a passage from a textbook, just out of their head. Yet they do not believe it in their heart. There's no faith accompanying what they know. No faith and no repentance. All head knowledge and no heart understanding. No resting confidence in Christ and no dealings with his blood. But true faith is faith in Christ. These people believe the word of God. Of course, Christ is the living word of God. And they believe what he had to say through Jonah. And we, looking to the word of God that's written before us, which speaks of the living word of God, we believe it too if we come to Christ. And dear friend, tonight, do you believe the word of God that you're lost in your sin? Do you believe the word of God that Christ died to save you? Do you believe the word of God that his blood can cleanse you from all sins? I trust and pray you do. For without it, there is no hope for your soul without Jesus Christ. But not only faith was evident, also lives were changed. This was another effect of the repentance of Nineveh. Verse 5 again. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. And that is a picture of repentance. They proclaimed this fast and then they put on this sackcloth. The sense of a fast, you know, is giving no sustenance to the flesh, but focusing on the spiritual. It's denying the flesh, really, to put it quite simply. And, you know, then you take the sackcloth. And that's an outward picture of how they felt inwardly. Sackcloth, it's a very scratchy, uncomfortable material. And as it were, inside they were sorrowful and deep distress. Their hearts were changed. It was not just a notion or a whim. It actually changed who they were. They had went from worshipping the flesh and money and idols. Now they fasted. They believed in God and they wore sackcloth. They had changed from what they were. It reads from the greatest of them to the least of them. And you think of that wealthy men, rich men fasting with the poorest men on the street. The great men of that city, whoever they were, fasting with the poor. Change of life was evident. And that's an fact of true repentance. A repentance that does not change our lives is not repentance at all. The Bible says that we are new creatures when we're saved. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You know, friend, when we look at this sackcloth, there are many in this land today, and as it were, in monasteries and different things, and in times gone by, and they'd have wore sackcloth to show how holy they were, but there was no true faith and repentance in it. 
You can have the outward, but you must have the inward. And if you look what they did, it says they believed God and then the sackcloth came on. Their heart was changed and then the outward was seen. Without the inward, the outward means nothing. Their lives were changed from the greatest to the least of them. Even the very king on his throne in verse 6, word came on to the king. So great was the noise round about this city that even the king heard it. And look, he arose from his throne. Verse 6, he laid his robe from him and he put on the sackcloth too and he sat in ashes. What is that a picture of? Here is a king, a great king, a wealthy king, a rich king with all that he needed, great servants, everything you could possibly think of. And he rises from his throne and he lays his robe from him. He throws off everything that makes him king and he, lie, he covers himself in sackcloth and he sits in the ashes. He humbles himself before God. And that is a picture of that king saying that Christ is my king. He was coming off his throne because there was one that was sitting on the throne of his heart. It's pointing to the Savior. He had turned to the Lord. And friend, that is a life changed, a great king. The people from the greatest to the least of them changed. And without that effect of repentance, we cannot say that repentance is real. And friend, tonight, you know, there is a great difference here between what the world teaches and what the Bible teaches. And friend, I trust and pray that as we looked at this tonight, that you would come to true repentance if you're not saved. And dear Christian, I pray that we would strive to see more of this true repentance in our own lives. You may think that you don't see much marks of it in your, many marks of it in your life today. But Christian, so do we all. We all feel the same. We all feel that our graces are so weak and almost you can hardly see them. But friend, if that work of grace has been done in your life, God will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. What we must do is believe in God, as the people of Nineveh did, and run to him. Put on the sackcloth. Cast off those things that would take our minds and our hearts from Christ and focus only on him. That's how we grow in grace. An unbeliever. Are you still a child of wrath tonight? Are you still out of Christ without a saviour? Or is this repentance yours? You might ask me, how can I be a Christian? Well, with this I close. In Acts 16.31, the old Philippian jailer was told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You know, they didn't say, believe the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The point is this. It's not enough just to know the Bible. It's not enough just to know there's a savior of sin from sin. It's not enough just to know the gospel. There must be a belief in the heart and a turning from sin. And that's what that old Philippian dealer did that night. And friend, that's what you need to do as well. Christ's precious blood will wash you. And Christ's sinless life, that will be your righteousness before God. And if you come to him, you'll be saved now and for all of God's great eternity. I've been saved 25 years just a few weeks ago. And I can say that I have failed the Lord so many times in my life. And I've had so many dark times in my life. But God has never left me. And his grace is always sufficient. He is the greatest friend. The truest friend. The one that sticketh closer than any brother. The one who never leaves nor forsakes. An unbeliever. I pray tonight he'd be your saviour before you leave this meeting. May God write his word upon our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's just close our meeting with a, another hymn please. It is the hymn 228. 228. I have a message from the Lord. Hallelujah. The message unto you I'll give. 
It is recorded in his word, hallelujah. It is only that you look into